I'd like to welcome Dr. Ian Storey. He's a lecturer in information systems at the University of Torrens and a regular contributor to the program over the years. G'day, Ian. Hi, Piers. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Now, look, today is a, uh, a really interesting subject and one that uh, I think that you, uh, you studied as an undergraduate at university and you were pretty good at from, from the sound of things. It's quantum mechanics and uh, there's an interesting film that sort of touches on this and has themes that people may have seen called Everything Everywhere All at Once. And I haven't seen that film. Uh, we are going to be careful about any spoilers today because we don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it. But it, it's an interesting film and it's uh, kind of inspired some interest in this area of, of quantum mechanics and quantum theory in general. Um, and can you sort of introduce the subject for listeners? Why is this important? Like, how did this come about, this theory? I know it was a kind of spin-off of, of what the work that Einstein did. Um, but, but how did it come about and why is it important? The theory of quantum mechanics itself uh, came about, um, I believe it was bl black body radiation. They couldn't explain how it worked and using classical mechanics, atoms should collapse. But instead they seem to be stable at a certain distance. And what's happening is they're, they're undergoing sort of what you could call quantum fluctuations. I mean, we'll talk more about that. But the theory that worked with quantum mechanics was um, statistical. And in fact, Einstein hated it. He said, God doesn't play dice. Yeah. So quantum mechanics comes up with probabilities, but the probabilities are precise. Not the prediction, but the probability, right? So the you know, if there's two things that could happen, one or other will happen. We can't predict which, but we can predict with precise probability, knowing the model and the event, what will happen. And if you want to model something larger than just, you know, two states, the model gets really, really complicated really, really quickly. And if you want to model a molecule in a chemical interaction, the more universes you can model at the same time, the more accurate your model gets. Now, that means the more precise your, your prediction gets. And in fact, physicists found a particle because the probabilities were wrong when they looked at certain interactions and they discovered a new particle must be the, must be the solution. When they fitted that particle into the model, perfect and we're talking about like degree of perfection of you know less than a millimeter over thousands of miles or thousands of kilometers right okay like in probability but not in prediction of what's actually happening now this creates a huge issue because think about it let it sink in the more possible worlds you consider the more accurate your model. I don't know if I can say it enough times. The more possible Feynman diagrams you do with different different worlds, the more precise your model is for larger, you know, larger interactions like molecules. So what does this mean for human beings? Well, this is mind-blowing, you know. And the first, well, let's say, and possibly still is the main contender, is called the Copenhagen Interpretation. Now, when I right. did my undergrad and learned about quantum mechanics, even my first introduction to it, I was skeptical. Not, <laughs> peers, when I talk about quantum mechanics to most people, they kind of want to make it work in an intuitive way. Mm. Um, and and I did too, you know. But by the time I was studying it in my undergrad, I was I was past that. I was trying to work out how it could make sense. And the Copenhagen interpretation just seemed to be a cop out to me. Um, right. I'll I'll try to explain why. Well, firstly, the Copenhagen interpretation is once you observe the event, 
that's it, it happened, and everything else collapses. But it's you observing the event. And there's the famous conundrum, I guess you could call it, of Schrodinger's cat. Schrodinger has a cat. It's, it's a bit of a nasty... I don't think we'd be allowed ethically to do the experiment. Um, <laughs> uh, so there's a quantum mechanical event. It has a 50% chance of occurring one way or the other. If it occurs one way, the cat lives. If it occurs the other way, poison is released into the box and the poor cat dies, right? <laughs> Not funny. I shouldn't be laughing. Well, it seemed to me, my cat's got consciousness. I've got consciousness. Just because I write down the result of the experiment doesn't mean that I determine whether the cat dies. Maybe there's two Schrodingers. You know, why can't the cat be an observer? It's looking at the world. Why can't a mouse be an observer? Why can't a caterpillar? Why can't an amoeba? A virus? In fact, surely from the perspective of any event that occurs, that event occurs. So it just seems like all of these worlds are real and they all happen at the same time. Now, please put double quotes around everything I'm saying there. And yet we seem to enter one real world whenever we make a measurement. So it just seems to me it's it's privileging the world at which we live. It's um, anthropocentric. Mm. You know, as a kid, I'd learned I'd learned that the world is round. The solar system is not the only solar system. You know, system of planets in the galaxy. The galaxy is not the only galaxy in the universe. And it sort of, you know, put me in mind of uh, Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot, which I I found really um, enormously profound, you know, that the the universe, excuse me, the universe is so amazingly big, and yet we are so, so incredibly small inside it. don't get me wrong, Piers, I'm not a nihilist. I believe in purpose for life, but purpose at mm. this scale of, of human existence. And the pale blue dot seemed to point out at that time, too, that we're all living on a, on a precious planet that we need to look after. He foresaw climate change in the 1980s and mm. reported to Congress on it. <clears throat> and, that, and that pale blue dot was actually the, the Voyager looking back, one of the uh, the first sort of interplanetary spacecraft to go right out to the outer solar system. And it took a, an image looking back and you could see this pale blue dot in the inner solar system, you know, a tiny, virtually a pixel or two in this image, you know, from a 1970s technology spacecraft, the Voyagers. But it was a very inspirational image because it showed the context so not just, you know, the, the moon landings gave us the, the, the Earth from, from the moon and showed us this, this planet hanging in the darkness of space. And then the pale blue dot image was, was taken by Voyager in the 1970s, late 1970s. And, and that was another sort of um, b- even bigger perspective on how small we are in the cosmos. So his work impressed me amazingly. He was a mm. beautiful speaker, you know, really um, incredibly great with words. But... Um, also, it went along with my understanding of science. I've always mm. loved science. That you don't try to privilege your perspective as something important. We've made that mistake many times before. Uh, sure. Can you just explain a little bit for, for listeners about what you mean about this anthropocentric view and how it relates to the sort of the two different theories if you like of 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 quantum mechanics and 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 schrodinger's cat so uh, it's like it's like if a tree falls in the in the forest and no one witnesses that that tree falling over did the tree fall over yeah no i i do you're you're saying you're saying yes it definitely does fall over Uh, and i kind of agree with you because i mean why wouldn't you know trees fall over it's not so happens over time it's not yeah it it falls over in its own universe, <laughs> you know. If we're talk, if we're talking about the multiverse kind of interpretation, it's more that 
the Copenhagen interpretation tied whether the event occurred or not to human observation to writing it down as a scientist and it just sounded like pseudoscience to me because it's sounding scientific it's beautiful it talks about observation but it's privileging the scientist as an observer as a human being why can't the cat be a scientist in its world because it's observing. Or do, you, or do you need? Do you even need to have consciousness? Do, do you, you need to exactly. have consciousness for something to happen? And you know, because they've added consciousness to it, it's a, it's a pseudo explanation of what consciousness is. Now, I'm not saying mm. I can explain consciousness, but what I'm saying is, everyone who wants to have a theory about consciousness with the Copenhagen interpretation can say, "Ha! I told you so." The physicists don't know how it works, and here it is. They need it for observation. And I don't believe that. I think consciousness is a mystery of a different order, of a different type. I, I don't want to get sidelined into the issue about consciousness and various... Mm. But it, it is interesting, isn't it, how, how you get this sort of crossover from, from, a, from a, a, a quantum physics question into philosophy well you know because i will i will get i will get sidelined on one thing there's a a guy oh because ronald searle i think is his name Mm. and he he's an author yeah he's a philosopher author and he has he has a theory that just doing a computation doesn't explain consciousness um okay well you know if you being that profound what does give us an experiment explain yourself you know Um, Mm. and the first experiment he proposed was that he would never be able to there's no computer program that would ever beat him in chess that was the experiment he proposed to show that calculation couldn't be consciousness guess what he was beaten in chess within 10 years by one of the worst chess programs programmed uh, programs that were available you know um, well one of the early ones Mm. and no one has demonstrated any clearer the connection between quantum mechanics and consciousness yes a lot of lot of people theorizing especially people who are pushing one or other kind of you know either religious or superstitious or whatever not to put them down maybe they're right I don't know okay (laughs) I'm not buying into the arguments what I'm saying is nothing has been proven to show that the connection except that the Copenhagen interpretation seems Mm. to lead to it but if you look at science before that we had to accept a lot of really hard hard facts about human insignificance the size of the cosmos is just incredibly huge. Mm. So let's go the other way then and suppose that somehow the interactions that occur are real. So all of those multifarious universes somehow do exist and we just find ourselves in one and keep keep on living with one and moving through them. Well, I kind of like it, but I can't believe... I find it incredible because the number of universes peers, every time there's one little subatomic reaction, the number of universes is enormous. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It increases it. So maybe one day we'll do an experiment where we find we are in such a multiverse. I kind of doubt it. I don't know. Mm. No one knows. Mm. But it, mm. it goes along much better with my intuition about the nature of the universe and about accepting our our limitations and doing experiments to do discovery rather than doing mm. you know suggestive philosophy and um, it's not like there there are other more widely accepted and more easily readily acceptable um, theories for example the big bang theory that singularity starting this universe and the background radiation the uh, the uh, you know three degree Kelvin or thereabouts uh, background radiation has been shown. We see it, yep, we see everywhere, and that's something that's 
you know, it can be proven. You know, you can do yeah. experiments Ex- to, to prove it. Experiments are um, still revealing things to us. And mm. people are doing uh, calculations with quantum mechanics all the time. The basic calculations mm. at the molecular level are the same, whether you're Copenhagen or multiverse. Th- those interpretations are at the human level. We haven't reached that level with our models yet. We just don't know. But I live in hope that one day we will be able to reach that level. And I think in order to do that, we need experiment, not self-indulgent philosophy. You know what I mean? I'll just read you a quote from uh, Kant. Kant said that without man, the whole of creation would be a mere wilderness, a thing in vain and have no final end. Well, when Kant wrote that, the universe was a lot smaller. It would seem like we were gods in our comprehension, as Shakespeare says. Mm. What Sagan said about that in Pale Blue Dot is that that's revealed to be a self-indulgent folly. Yeah. And I I agree with that. I, I agree with that 100%. We need to think our way through problems, not rely on our on our super importance to the universe. Yep. For, for listeners and for my own um, information as well, I sort of want to take a few steps back and just get sort of some of the kind of fundamentals that are leading to this conversation sorted in my mind. So one of the theories is that it's the act of looking that actually creates some of these these subatomic interactions that you that that are observed. You know, it's only yep. when you look do that, they happen. Yeah, that's the thing, and, that, and that's the that's the temptation, isn't it? To yeah. then say, oh well, because we're conscious beings and we're the top of the tree or we're the top of the food chain or whatever, that that uh, therefore we've got some special there's something special about consciousness. That's that, right. Yeah, um, that causes these things to happen, and then the counter argument is that they happen anyway. Yeah, I mean, I mean, once you reach that point, really, you've got to say, our intuition is not built around understanding events at the quantum level. Maybe, you know, people are learning to program quantum computers with lots of entangled states. Maybe they'll start to get a bit of an intuition about how these things work. And, um, mm. you know, exciting possibilities of modeling, doing accurate modeling in a computer of chemical reactions maybe even developing cold fusion, you know, just wonderful things are possible. Uh, nano yeah. Nanobots that could keep us alive for hundreds of years. And there's already applications. That, well, there's a couple of things that come up in there. That the, um, I think it was 1927 that Heisenberg came up with the uncertainty principle. And this was this idea, which we just mentioned, the act of measurement always disturbs the object measured, um, which is kind of interesting. And that's to do with that, you know, when you look for something... It, it comes into being in certain in certain atomic situations. Well, and also then, then, practical applications like uh, semiconductors and computers and yeah, mobile absolutely. phones. Um, super superconductors and superfluidity, lasers, even fluorescent phones. lights, lasers. Yep, these are all impossible to understand. I talked to you the other day about Schottky diodes, where particles yep. actually tunnel through a barrier. Only possible yep. in quantum mechanics. Yep. Just, you know, and marvellous uh, things that we live with every day. But, mm. yeah, the, the reason I guess that I'm talking about this is because this movie, every, Everything Everywhere All at Once, it's called. Everything Everywhere All at yeah. Once. Bit of a tongue twister, yeah. but there have been movies about the multiverse. I mean, there's one Doctor Strange and Multiverse Madness. It's a Marvel movie and it's fun. I'm a boy. I like those kind of things. You know, they duke it out in the last 20 minutes, whatever. This, everything everywhere, all at once was different. It it actually made me cry in parts in ways which were kind of profound. So, for example, mm-hmm. if you accept the multiverse interpretation... And the movie was a lot of fun and a lot of things were happening. But at one point, they talked about how it's highly improbable that we evolved at all. And in most of the multiverses, there are no humans and the Earth has just got rocks on it. <laughs> and so there are, the way they animated it, they, you know, they, they used a bit of storytelling technique. 
they had two rocks that were chasing after each other in a totally bleak landscape. And it was funny, but it was also beautiful. And there were various mm. things like that. And when they duked it up, uh, I can't tell you about the ending, can I? No, you can't. That'd yeah. be a spoiler. We yeah. don't want to do that because it it's has, still in the cinemas. You can yeah. you can see it in, in cinemas at the moment around the world. And, and then also, as you said, you can, you can download it if you want to. Yeah. It's fairly new. I think it's only been released in the last few months, so it's a pretty new film. Yeah, yeah. But it 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 just it it had profundity in the way that it thought through the implications of the multiverse. And the main yeah. the main implication and the main enemy in the story, if I may say, is our own insignificance and finding significance despite that insignificance. It's really quite piquant in the way it does it. It's fun mm. and it's funny and it's a you know adventure story. There is one thing I will dare to talk about, and that is um, if you've seen the movie two thousand and one, mm-hmm. um, the monkey has the ability to to bang a um, to bang a bone against a, a a rock, let's say, because it's got opposable thumbs, and so that's the start of the evolution of human beings. Yep. Well, in one of the multiverses the monkey that has the opposable thumb dies somehow (laughs) and so the humans that evolve don't have opposable thumbs it seems quite ridiculous they're going out on a limb with it but it still has this message that how amazing it is you know how amazingly improbable is is the development of life on earth Absolutely, and and you know there, there, there's the Drake equation, I think, which is the one that sort of gives you the probability of it being elsewhere, and and one of the problems or one of the things that's been highlighted with that recently uh, is we're talking about yeah intelligent life beyond beyond our solar system, beyond our galaxy even, and one of the problems is that because of the age of the the universe, it's quite if you do your you do your statistics, uh, it's quite possible that that you had. An intelligent civilization arise somewhere and then disappear in the distant past. So, there, there may have been life, but but we're not going to ever communicate with it because it ceased to exist billions of, of years ago, hmm. billions of light years ago, if you like, in terms of our chance of, of ever communicating or even you know because you can't exceed the speed of light. That's a that's a universal maximum speed limit, and so therefore we may at, at best be able to observe them using you know an advanced telescope like the James Webb Space Telescope that's just started sp- sending back all those amazing images but by the time the light gets to us they're they're long gone mm. and that's kind of best case scenario the possibilities from the multiverse if we could what i liked about the movie was mm. that it really represented the multiverse nicely you know there were slight different differentiations that that spread themselves almost infinitely throughout the multiverse. So and the it, multiverse is where you've got you've got just to clarify you've got sort of multiple versions with slight differences of every everything that's happening all around the world at the simultaneously yeah. separated by a, by a sort of a membrane if you like that that we're not aware of and you obviously you know the and I haven't seen the movie so I don't know how they do it but. Uh, in the movie, presumably there is some way that the that the the barriers are able to be crossed. Yeah. And the so in the in the movie, yeah. So instead of going forward through through the multiverse and never touching the ones outside, it, well, mm. you do touch them because they influence you at a quantum mechanical level, but at a larger level, um, we're just too big to notice any other effects. Well, somehow. Mm. Um, they're positing that if the multiverse was real, maybe you could have a way of interacting from, you know, one. Um, maybe you could have two Schrodingers, and you know, in an experiment, and maybe in some way we could devise an experiment where we could see Schrodinger saying, "Ah, oh, the cat's alive," and another experiment that Schrodinger saying, "Ah, oh, the cat is dead." Or something like that. Mm. That mm. would be impossible in the Copenhagen interpretation. Now, my ex- my thought experiment there is really not the way it would work. But maybe there is some way. Maybe there's someone who's really clever enough to design an experiment that could actually show show the difference. 
But what I suspect, Piers, is that somehow we do live in one universe, but the probabilities that we have are influenced by possible universes. Let me just say, I don't know, right? The multiverse might (laughs) be real, but I very much doubt the Copenhagen interpretation. I think if there's a collapse of what they call the state factor, and we do all live in just one universe at a macro level anyway, I think there might be a deeper reason and we just haven't found it yet. I'm, yeah. I'm just super sceptical of um, the uh, self-indulgent folly, as as uh, Sagan would call it, of putting humans as the only sort of way in which human observation as the only way in which the state vector collapses. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au. Can you explain what you mean by that, the state vector collapsing? Because that's quite a that's quite a concept to get your head around. Oh well, we've what talked. What does it mean? We've talked about it before. It's observing that makes that makes the event uh, real. Yeah. Ah, okay. It's simply that. Okay. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. And and Einstein was quite was critical of the Copenhagen interpretation, wasn't he? He was. Yeah, but for a different mm. reason. Mm-hmm. He he grew up, and he explained a whole world of new amazing things basically coming out of the equations of Maxwell, discovering the importance of the speed of light and all that kind of thing. And the world that he discovered, and the world that they verified by experiment, by the way, many times over, by the way, your GPS wouldn't work if if relativity wasn't used in the calculation of your Mm -hmm. location. Mm. You'd be, Mm. be very, very inaccurate. So experiment verified everything that he said, but there were just a whole lot of other phenomena that his his experiments didn't touch, you know, and those are the molecular interactions that occur, the very, very small particles. With Einstein's predictions, atoms would collapse. They don't collapse because of quantum mechanics. So he he was wrong in that his theories were still, what's the word, uh, approximations. Yeah. It's, it's yep. really interesting, isn't it, that as time goes on, science discovers more and tells us that we know less and less. <laughs> so in the yeah. sense that for millennia, literally over 2,000 years, Euclid was the gold standard when it came to logic. Mm. Euclid's geometry in particular. That geometry mm. is wrong in the real universe. The real universe is curved, and Einstein discovered that. Yep, time and space. Yeah. Um, yep. But the curved universe is also wrong, or at least Einstein's interpretation, because of quantum mechanics. More experiments revealed where it was wrong. But these experiments have become so precise in terms of probability that they're verified. You know, they're verified by experiment. I mean, it's such a complicated area, isn't it? It's, it's a sort of highly technical mathematics. It draws on various um, disciplines. It's, it's physics, it's mathematics, um, it's, it's astronomy. I think that finding uh, and proving the existence of gravitational waves, which they did fairly recently and, you know, within the last 10 years, the, um, the, that, that huge laser in the United States, uh, I think it's LIDO, was the detector yep. that, that that first picked them up, and that was that actually supported the some of the theories of Einstein. So, you know, while he's 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 not he hasn't been right about quantum mechanics, but there's other things other things well, that he quantum, wrote about quantum which have been waves, confirmed. Quantum waves are so delicate and so hard to pick up that they require some huge event in in the mm. galaxy to to be able to pick them up. And he like was a supernova. right. Yeah. Yeah, he was right that those occur, but we just hadn't mm. had an experiment to pick them up. But okay. you know, yep. that knowledge was there in like the 50s, you know, so um, mm. 
oh, ever since he, he developed the theory, the general theory of relativity. Right. So gravitational waves can be called quantum waves as well, can they? Well, this is where <laughs> I have some concept of this, but maybe I'm not the guy to ask. But my understanding is that the wave interpretation of gravity and the quantum mechanical interpretation of gravity as particle interactions are inconsistent and it may be that um, now this is my understanding I've heard it explained this way once and this seemed to make some sense to me so it may be that the field interpretation of gravity is really an approximation to a whole lot of interactions that are occurring between spatial particles if that makes sense I don't know but I think that's the level of speculation that's occurring at the moment no one can tie gravity and quantum mechanics together at this point in time and right. they and they try and um, you know they talk about string theory um, but I I tend to think that we might we might be in line for a great unification theory, what's called GUT, G-U-T, great yeah, unification or, Yeah, or, yeah, or a, a toe. Yeah, toe. Yeah, what does toe stand for again? Theory of, theory of everything. Theory of everything, that's right, yeah. So, um, so instead of... So what Einstein did was he took space and time and made them one thing, and he took energy and matter and made them one thing. So now there are two things... So maybe one day we'll be able to join those two things together um, and in a way that also allows quantum mechanics. And maybe we can do it through experiments that can find a difference between one theory and another. One thing I can say is that there are differences, it seems to me, between the Copenhagen interpretation and something like the multiverse interpretation enough that maybe one day we can get an experiment that distinguishes them but at, at the moment we're dealing with such small phenomena that we can't model humans um, using quantum mechanics mm. it's, it's interesting to me how a lot of this stuff came out these theories developed out of people's sort of intuition and, and that a lot, in a lot of cases their intuition was actually right you know that the the idea of um, well Schrodinger's cat. I mean, I know that there's there's some complexity to that and some controversy, but you know the way that the things that Einstein was going through to develop his theories was well, a lot of it was based on sort of his intuition, and then using that as a starting point to actually develop these theories using his background in mathematics and his his ability to um, to kind of come up with formulas to to prove his intuition. But there I, was, but there was something. There was something in 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 human nature which was sort of able. People looked around and said, "Well, this is actually the way to explain the world around me, the universe around me." Yeah, Einstein spent a lot of time looking at the best physical laws, you know, the best uh, physical equations, if you like, that were available at the time, particularly Maxwell's equations. And he was quite adamant that he stood on the shoulders of giants. Mm. he didn't develop his intuition or his theories out of a vacuum um, no. you know for me it, it took a lot of a long long time to appreciate that uh, quantum mechanics for example was about somehow separate realities influencing probabilities and not just try to explain it in some more mechanical kind of way and I find when I talk to people about quantum mechanics, that's kind of the first thing that they want to do. What I wanted to do, you know, when I was younger, was this doesn't make sense, this is insane. Let me think about it for a while, I can come up with something better. I'm sure everyone feels that way and wants to get a solution for it. A lot of people are, however, saying that there is no such solution. All these theories are, the, are just different variations of the same theme. We'll never have a solution to it. I'm a bit more hopeful. I think that 
experiment can help us to reveal a lot about the universe. And yeah, maybe it does reveal that we've got to keep this sort of many worlds part of quantum mechanics. But maybe we can explain it better and explain it better at the human level, you know, at the Mm. macro level. What are um, Einstein condensates? And this is also called the fifth state of matter. Don't know. (laughs) Okay. No, no, it's just, just, look, I've just been, I've been doing a bit of reading ahead of, of this and, and the book that I've been reading is, is, is a good one actually. It's called The Order of Time by Carlo Rivelli and it's, it's, it's a fairly recent bestseller and, and what he's good at is, is sort of making these pretty heavy kind of concepts which a lot of people would find. I, had, I did read a, in, a book called The Arrow of Time. Yeah, this, imagine, is, well, this is even... Imagine though having the... being the first to discover a way to go backwards and... Of you know, talk about insider trading. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> this book, if, if listeners, listeners are looking to get get hold of something, because one thing, something that I think is really is interesting and tied into this a little bit is, is um, you know, the concept of time. And, and, you know, this does relate to this discussion about the multiverse or multiverses or multiple universes, however you want to describe it. And, you know, the question even really of whether time actually exists that in itself is kind of an interesting discussion that's really what this book is about the order of time carlo Rivelli, which i've got hold of recently it's a paperback you can you can pick it up in a bookstore for about 20 bucks but it is good because it explains things in a very he's a great science communicator communicator you know he does simplify complicated concepts and he doesn't use a lot of there's not a lot of formulas in this book i think there's one formula only in the whole book he's actually a you know a very senior academic highly qualified physicist and and, um, mathematician that kind of background but he's good at explaining things and he's quite quite poetic in in the way that he uh, he sort of simplifies some of these concepts the business of of, of explaining and proving that time actually moves in one direction is really interesting and it kind of touches on all these subjects that we've been talking about today the multiverse or or other or the Copenhagen interpretation which has at its as a problem that the business that that humans are kind of the center of the universe i had read as i said about i think it was a book called the arrow of time or or maybe it was just an article in scientific american or something like that that most quantum mechanical interactions can go backwards but there is one in particular that can't and that seems Mm. to be determining the direction of time Uh, yeah I don't it's really do, know. I think everything can be modelled forwards or backwards, except if you heat something up you, and you know that that agitates, when something's hot, it means that the molecules inside it, the atoms inside it are agitated. And when something's cold, they're not agitated. So if you take a block of ice out of the freezer and put it on your kitchen bench, the process of it warming up and melting to room temperature is actually its molecules becoming more and more agitated as it goes from that cold state to a warm state. But what doesn't happen is you, the molecules do the opposite when you freeze something. So when you take something from room temperature, a, a, you know, a glass of water, and you put it in the freezer, it's doing the opposite. The molecules are, uh, are becoming less and less agitated as they get colder. And apparently that's why studying states of, of um, particles at close to or at absolute zero is very useful in in finding out how things happen on a sub- subatomic level because they're so quiet there's so little agitation well the and that, um, that's beneficial and so that just just to finish it that that movement from something that's inactive and unagitated at a molecular level or atomic level but as you warm it up becoming more agitated it's suggested that that actually proves that there is a direction of time which you can't go back on. You can't go from warm to cold in terms of agitation, but you can from cold to warm. There are experiments in cheating the effect of heating. Um, So quantum computers and superconductivity are starting to happen at higher and higher temperatures. I mean, how fantastic would it be to have superconductivity at room temperature? So you could have maglev everywhere you know mm-hmm. and you quantum computers running at room temperature would be absolutely amazing and i think there was 
an experiment in Australia. You were talking to me about earlier when we spoke yesterday. An experiment done by Australians to somehow produce quantum entanglement, but at higher temperatures. Mm -hmm. There's amazing developments in this area. There are amazing things in the future that can happen as a result of this kind of investigation. Yeah, isn't it? And, and it's, it's, it's got a, a very um, sort of strategic and, and even a, a military side to it because, you know, the person who can, can come up with a, a sort of everyday quantum computer will suddenly have a big advantage in terms of, you know, you could potentially break everyone else's codes. Even the best encryption technology that's around today could be potentially easily broken. Imagine the sort of weapon systems. I mean, I hate to say it, but but there's a you know this is the this is the dark side of this kind of technology is there is a, a military application, unfortunately. Well, it goes and, back uh, to who, who to Carl Sagan. It's a pale blue dot, and we've got to look after it. Yeah. And if we don't, um, it's folly just to head straight long into into self destruction. Yep. Especially yep, given indeed. how especially given how how small we are in the entire universe. Mm, it's, it's very true. And we don't, we just, we just, it's going to be very hard to find it elsewhere. And, and it'll take us a while. Like even, you know, even with the technology they've got on Mars, they're, they're investigating a river delta, an ancient river delta at Jezero Crater. And they've got a rover that's, that's actually taking core samples for collection later. But, you know, it, it's going to be, it's, it's almost a race against time, maybe. I mean, maybe all the, th- maybe we'd be self-destructive even if we did know there was life elsewhere. I mean, would it necessarily change our the human human Homo sapiens interest or capacity for self destruction if we did know that there was life elsewhere? I mean, maybe the the, the um, comfort would be that at least there was life elsewhere, which might evolve to replace us after we'd destroyed ourselves. <laughs> yeah, or maybe it would start us thinking, oh, we've got to protect ourselves and develop more weapons. Um. exactly i hope not Well, i mean different people have had different attitudes stephen hawking was was very against it was too um, trying to communicate yeah and there's various projects to uh i think it's the breakthrough project breakthrough listen is a project where you know they're sending out these messages beaming out messages into you know interstellar space you know saying here we are you know we'd love to communicate with you and he's saying well you don't necessarily want to communicate with people with other um intelligences because they might they might be uh, very hostile they might be looking for another planet to settle they might might have burned out their own resources it's, it's very hard to know we just assume it would be on a friendly basis that they're just as curious about other things as we are yeah i'm not i'm not too sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah <clears throat> but i did think just to to wrap up piers that given that the the movie you know it was fun playful but it the movie Everything, everywhere, all at once, again a tongue twister, is kind of a really good introduction to what the multiverse means. You know, other mm. movies have tried to do it, but this really sort of settles into the concept of it, and it has really nice, really nice elements in it. But I, I won't say any more. <laughs> Clearly, there's some good stuff because I, I know that you were quite inspired and intrigued by this, and I'm certainly very interested in, in how this has been portrayed on film in kind of an entertaining way. It's not a it's not a very it's not a dry scientific film that we're talking about. It's a it's a very human film by the sound of things. I remember when I was younger thinking maybe these events are as real as my observation, and maybe we do move into a kind of multiverse. But again, you know, it has to be stressed that it's it's speculation. I don't believe the Copenhagen interpretation, but I believe that there could be something halfway between the two mm. speculations. I just don't know, of course, uh, but I'm hopeful that there will be some experiment that shows. But what people should, and I think a good point to end on, what people should reflect on is that the more universes we model, the more accurate our models become. Even if we're just modeling the probabilities, the more universes we imagine in our models, the better the probabilities are. And that's mm. that's something that's mind-blowing. Yeah. So you've got to study it. You can't write it off, and you've just got to study it, and you've got to keep modeling it. 
don't accept it as a given. And obviously, you know, until you've got some hard scientific evidence, you've just got to keep looking, haven't you? You, you, yeah. you, don't, you don't give up, but you, you, you're also mindful that you haven't, you haven't got a conclusion. You don't have a, a something that's, that's proven. Well, Einstein developed his theories and his equations, but he wasn't necessarily the best person to use them. You know, there have been kind of smarter people who've taken his work and used his equations in better ways than he has. Maybe a similar thing could happen with quantum mechanics, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll get much more light shed on it in the future. I'm certainly hopeful of that. You know, there's all sorts of stuff you can watch on YouTube about this, and there's some great interviews with Edward Teller, you know, the guy who invented the hydrogen bomb, so not the atom bomb, the hydrogen bomb, which is the one that's, you know, instead of um, tens of thousands of tonnes of, of kilotons of TNT in one explosion, you have millions of tonnes of, of uh, TNT equivalent in, in one explosion. So Edward Teller was a controversial figure who, I think he fell out with Oppenheimer. He, Oppenheimer didn't like... The, the direction of developing a hydrogen bomb he thought you know that the atom bomb was bad enough but that's an example of where Einstein's theories have, have been used you know to do something which uh, probably Einstein would have well uh, he was around when they did the when they dropped yeah he the, was yeah he yeah. was so he would have been pretty horrified in fact uh, he I, was I mean, he wrote a letter he wrote a letter I think to the to Roosevelt saying you better do this because because the um, the Germans will do it if you don't do it but I imagine he was pretty horrified about um, you know the outcome. Einstein made the mistake of writing an essay on the virtues of socialism. It was sort of snubbing the McCarthyism of the era in which he wrote it. He was also asked to be president of Israel, but really? declined. Yeah, he was just so, such an amazing character. Mm. Einstein came up with a fridge, which I think was a very successful, a very effective design for a fridge. Yeah, it was Einstein's a it was fridge. a non-mechanical, noiseless fridge. Yeah. Um, how many times have you walked past your fridge and you thought that's rattling away? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I think we all stand on the shoulders of giants, and the great thing is that we have access to to their wisdom, to their knowledge, and to these experimental results. The development of the printing press was one of the most amazing developments in history and spurred on enormous growth in knowledge. But it, at every step along the way, we've been standing on the, on the shoulders of the giants of the past. Mm. To say that people could use his equations better than he is not to detract from the incredible advances that he made coming no, from uh, Maxwell's equations yeah that's sort of the, the seed of it I, I get the feeling in, in some way was was intuition was him sort of you know that some of these these real geniuses who who've, Maxwell included actually who've looked around and they've they've intuited something about the world and that set them on the path to actually developing the theories which which confirmed that intuition I think also though you've got to be humble enough to accept the reality that comes along. Einstein kind of wasn't when it came to quantum mechanics. You know, who knows, maybe if he'd have had more time and was younger, he might have come up with a, with a solution that solved the problem of the randomness of quantum mechanics. But I kind of think the it's one, built into I, it. Yeah, the one who I like actually, who I find is a great, a great communicator and, and just a fascinating and, and really amazing person is, um, is Feynman who is an American astrophysicist, and there's lots of his lectures and stuff you can watch online. Him talking about his childhood and, and this sort of just these early observations that he made at a as a child and you know, conversations he had with his father about the natural world that he grew up with around him, that inspiring him and leading him to be very curious. And he, you know, he acknowledges that he was a very, very curious child and how that you know, set him on the path to being the brilliant physicist that he became he to me is is um is a lot more accessible than einstein because he, he, i think in a way he was a better communicator he wrote very accessible books yeah i have mm. i have some of them on my shelf here he was as you say a really excellent communicator a cool guy mm. as well yeah very know. cool guy that, that's yeah. i think that's what sort of that, that i mean he, he was a charismatic guy he wasn't yeah. sort of a ivory tower he, intellectual he didn't he, he didn't have just one type of jumper that he used to Einstein yeah. is famous for having 
one type of jumper so he didn't have to make a decision <laughs> and didn't take away time from thinking about things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Feynman would have regarded that as quite uncool, I'm sure. All right, well, look, Ian, this is a good time to wrap it up, but uh, a great conversation. And we've actually talked about some of these things. We've talked about relativity in the past. We have, we've yeah, talked about yeah. Maxwell and the development of electricity. So there's, there's a bit of crossover into other things that we've talked about, and you can find these on the program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, which Ian's been a great contributor to over the years. So thank you again for today, Ian. I will look forward to another chat with you. Maybe once I've, once I've seen this film, everything, everywhere, all at once, I might have a bit, a bit more of an idea of the, uh, the notion of the multiverse. I, I hope uh, I haven't built it up to the point where it's disappointing, but I very much enjoyed it. I found mm. it quite quite illuminating in a way, quite piquant, really, in a way. I, for one, am, am very intrigued, and uh, I hope it lives up to the to the rap that it's it's been getting. It's good when someone, you know, can kind of, or a filmmaker or anyone in a sort of uh, kind of creative field can, can tackle something which has got a lot of sort of scientific debate and stuff behind it. It's a, um, you know, I think it's good that that can be sort of translated into something which is accessible and and, and thought-provoking and, and, and has some basis in in scientific debate that's going on contemporary scientific debate yeah i was very surprised to see that and i thought it was worthwhile us having a having a discussion sort of springboarding from that movie Mm. well i'll have to make sure i see it and maybe there'll be a follow-up discussion once i have for now thank you very much uh, dr ian story we will be in touch and uh, look forward to another chat and stay healthy you too thanks peers i've enjoyed it i've really enjoyed it